70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Здравствуйте. Меня зовут Ольга. Мы из города Кунгур, Пермский край. Очень рады отправить вам видео. Итак, KBS исполняется 70. Hello, we are Alexandra and Olga. I send greetings to all of you on behalf of my brother Alexander as well, because he has difficulty speaking due to his condition. KBS World Radio is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. 70 years is not a short time. I think the years added more value to KBS World Radio just like good wine. I first started to tune into KBS World Radio in the late 90s and have been enjoying the channel ever since. Now I can't imagine my life without KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It's Wednesday, the 1st of November, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won Jang-woo. According to South Korea's spy agency, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has instructed his regime to comprehensively support Palestine in its war between Israel and Hamas. This comes after it was revealed last week that Hamas had used North Korean weapons in its attack on Israel on October 7th. We'll have more on the spy agency's assessment for our news briefing today. And then for our in-depth, we'll further explore the links between North Korea and Hamas. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we review a book about the traumas of the Korean War called The Guest by Hwang Seok-young. Let's begin Korea 24. The National Intelligence Service says North Korean leader Kim Jong-un ordered his officials to find ways to support Palestine amid the Israel-Hamas war. The spy agency believes the North is trying to use the war in a multilateral way. The NIS also said that Pyongyang is in the final stages of preparing for the third launch of its military reconnaissance satellite. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now as FT Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-young, In hello. Hello, Chang-ho. So the South Korean spy agency says it has come across signs that North Korean leader Kim Jong-un instructed various agencies to find ways to support Palestine. That's according to the People Power Party lawmaker Yu Sang-bum after a parliamentary inspection of the agency behind closed doors on Wednesday. So what more did the NIS reportedly say? The agency said it believed the North could move to sell weapons to militant groups and third-world countries, citing that Pyongyang has a history of exporting anti-tank weapons and multiple rocket launchers to Hamas and Hezbollah. Let's hear from Representative Yu in his own, own words. 
하마스 이스라엘 전쟁 사태를 다각적으로 활용하고자 기도 중인 것으로 평가하고 있습니다. The National Intelligence Service believes that North Korea is seeking to take advantage of the Israel-Hamas war in multifaceted ways. The NIS has obtained intelligence that suggests North Korean leader Kim Jong-un instructed various agencies to find ways to comprehensive support Palestine in the war between Israel and Hamas. And the NIS believes that as Pyongyang has a history of exporting anti-tank weapons and multiple rocket launches to Hamas and Hezbollah, the North could attempt selling weapons to militant groups in the region and third world countries. The NIS also assessed that the regime's smuggling and plundering of its people's assets have become more severe in order to fund the advancement of its nuclear weapons and missile development and to provide Russia with war supplies. The agency said that Pyongyang smuggled out some 1,800 kilograms of gold bars this year, or triple the amount estimated last year. That's worth roughly $110 million. The NIS also estimated that China and the North were behind 80% of hacking attempts targeting South Korea. The NIS also said that North Korea seems to be almost ready to launch its military reconnaissance satellite after two failed attempts. That's right. North Korea previously declared that it would launch the satellite in in October, but that didn't materialize, so there's been a lot of speculation on when that would happen. The NIS assessed that the North conducted checks on engines and launch equipment and that it appears to have received consultation on technology from Russia, which could be related to Kim and Putin's meeting in the Russian Far East in September. The NIS believes the third launch will likely be successful. Going back to the war in Gaza, Pyongyang's ambassador to the UN has refuted a media report that Hamas has been using North Korean weapons in its war against Israel. Can you tell us more? Yes, Ambassador Kim Song said in a UN General Assembly session on Tuesday that the mass media of the U.S. government is spreading groundless and false rumors about the North. He said that the report clearly confirmed the U.S. malicious intent to shift its own wrongdoings onto others. This comes after the Voice of America cited Israeli ambassador to South Korea, Akiva Tor, as saying that Hamas is using weapons manufactured in North Korea. Kim also expressed North Korea's unwavering support for Palestinians while criticizing the United States for its support of Israel. Can you give us an update on what's happening in Gaza as well in relation to the war? According to Reuters, Israel's airstrike on Tuesday hit Jubalia refugee camp in northern Gaza. The Israeli military claimed that the offensive eliminated a Hamas commander central to the October 7th attack, but Gaza's interior ministry reportedly estimated the number of civilian deaths and injuries in the airstrike at about 400. The U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, will also make another visit to Israel on Friday as the U.S. seeks a, quote-unquote, pause in the conflict to get aid into Gaza. He will then attend the Group of Seven Foreign Ministers meeting in Tokyo next Tuesday and Wednesday before visiting South Korea as well. Can you tell us about what we can expect from uh, Blinken's visit to Seoul? Sure, Seoul's foreign ministry said on Wednesday that Blinken will visit Seoul for two days from next Wednesday and hold extensive discussions with Foreign Minister Park Jin on the Seoul-Washington alliance. North Korea issues, economic security and key regional and global concerns. Blinken's meeting with Park is likely to take place on Thursday morning. Blinken's South Korea visit is, is his first in two and a half years and the first since the launch of the Yoon Song yeol government. The two could also coordinate stances ahead of a possible U.S.-China summit, which would offer up a key turning point for situations concerning Northeast Asia and the Korean Peninsula. 
And finally, shifting to economic news, South Korea's exports expanded on year for the first time in 13 months in October. Can you tell us more? Yes, outbound shipments jumped 5.1% in October from last year to 55.09 billion U.S. dollars, helped by a smaller decline in sales of semiconductors, which is South Korea's main export item. Exports in the shipbuilding industry also more than doubled, while shipments of automobiles, petroleum products and displaced all surged by double digits. Shipments of chips, which led the export decline over the past year, fell 3.1%, which was the smallest on-year drop in 2020. We wrap up our news briefing there. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. Last Thursday, the Israeli military held a media tour. Where they exhibited the weaponry recovered from Hamas militants after the attacks on October 7th. What drew the attention of many people, especially here in Korea, was that a considerable portion of the exhibition was a set of North Korean rocket propelled grenades. Pyongyang has officially denied any cooperation with the Palestinian militant group, arguing that it's all a groundless and false rumor. Yet experts say the North Korea supplied arms is no surprise. In fact, South Korea's spy agency reportedly told lawmakers today that it has uh, intelligence saying that North Korean leader Kim Jong un gave orders to find ways to fully support Palestine. To learn more about the relationship between North Korea and Palestine and Hamas, as well as other militant groups in the region, we have joining us. On the line today, Dr. Samuel Romani at the Royal United Services Institute, a London-based defence and security think tank. He has been looking into this issue. Dr. Romani, hello and thank you for your time today. And thank you very much. It's great to be here. Let's start with the North Korean weapons supposedly used by Hamas. As I mentioned, North Korea has denied that it has supplied weapons to Hamas. But what does the evidence show and what grounds do experts say North Korea is definitely arming Hamas? So obviously we've seen North Korean equipment being used in Hamas's arsenals, including RPG-7s, which are coming very straight from the North Korean arsenal, We're also seeing uh, evidence of North Korean artillery shells, the Bang 122s, also being used by the Al-Qassam Brigade. And some of those weapons may have been used during the October 7th attack on Israel. Moreover, there was previous reporting by Western media outlets about a decade ago during the 2014 uh, Israeli war on the Gaza Strip that there was a cash for arms deal between Hamas and North Korea that was transacted through Hamas's subsidiary bank in Beirut, Lebanon. So there's been a long-standing uh, history of a partnership between North Korea and Hamas in the military sphere, and we're now seeing evidence of the North Korean weapons actually being used on the front lines of this current conflict. Hmm. Right. And do we know how large the North Korean arsenal uh, that Hamas owns? And what is the significance of this uh, relationship? How beneficial is it for both sides, uh, do you think? Well, I think for North Korea, the biggest benefit is obviously uh, hard currency from wherever it can get it. Because even the uh, deal in uh, 2014 would have netted uh, North Korea hundreds of thousands of dollars in hard currency. And the reason why I say that this is principally driven by hard currency rather than ideology was that during the uh, early 1990s, 1992 and 1993, 
the North Koreans were willing to scale back their alignment with uh, Palestinian militant groups and Iran-aligned militant groups, provided that they were going to get some kind of a trade agreement with Israel. And that's something that Ishak Rabin briefly uh, mulled before the Israeli right and others in the United States uh, urged him to pull back. So North Korea officially, of course, does not recognize Israel's right to exist. It supports Palestine as having full control over all of Israeli territory and it views Israel as a, uh, a satellite state, but uh, an imperial satellite state, but also it uh, has real economic and hard currency drivers. For Hamas, it's really just getting weapons from wherever it can find it, too. So uh, the Iranians and the Syrians have obviously helped them over the years. But when uh, the Syrian civil war broke out in 2011, they lost their key clients, and they also lost access to some Iranian support. So they had to look for other areas, and North Korea stepped in, too. Right. So then how far back does this uh, North Korea-Hamas alliance go? Well, we, I guess we can't call it an uh, alliance. You're saying this is more of a transactional relationship then? Yeah, it's mostly a transactional partnership. I mean, it's really hard to tell exactly when it began. I mean, I think it probably began, I would say, after the start of the Syrian civil war uh, with Syrian President Bashar al-Assad and the Iranians obviously having a problem with Hamas because Hamas was uh, supporting the Syrian rebels. And uh, while some of the Gulf monarchies, the Sunni monarchies like Qatar or Saudi Arabia had individuals or officials that might be willing to provide financial support for the Hamas leadership in Gaza, they weren't necessarily that inclined towards arming it. So that meant that Hamas needed to get weapons uh, through smuggling or through alternative routes. And uh, one of them was obviously potentially through North Korea. And uh, uh, North Korea probably transacted and funneled its weapons through a variety of third countries to get to uh, Hamas' territory. North Korea has also adopted anti-Israel rhetoric. Uh, but you're saying that perhaps it is just because uh, they are looking to uh, build this relationship with uh, Palestine to sell weapons rather than uh, believing in it, uh, in the philosophy of it. Well, I, mean, I think that there's probably some evidence that they do believe in the philosophy of it because North Koreans have been really taking this position out since the early stages of the Cold War. We had North Korean pilots, obviously, participating alongside their Egyptian and Syrian counterparts during the 1973 war. North Korea's relationship with Yasser Arafat was famously close. Arafat even visited Pyongyang in 1984 to get uh, North Korean military assistance. North Korea has ties to Hezbollah, which date back to the 1980s. So there is an ideological component to it. My point was that North Korea was, would have been happy to have worked with Israel if the Israelis were going to pay them a lot more than the uh, Palestinian militants. So the point is, the bigger driver of this is probably hard currency rather than ideology. Mm, interesting. Uh, as you mentioned there, there is this relationship not only with Hamas in this region, but uh, Pyongyang also has relationship with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and the Houthis in Yemen, right? Yeah, well, so the relationship with Hezbollah obviously predates uh, whatever they have with Hamas. It began during the 1980s, obviously, when North Koreans were sending uh, instructors to, to work with them. And then really after 2000, when we started seeing Bashar al-Assad personally direct North Korean diplomats to assist uh, the, uh, the Hezbollah in the construction of tunnels and other infrastructure that would uh, protect their weapons and protect their fighters from an potential Israeli uh, ground attack in the future. That began in 2004, and North Korea's uh, tunnel infrastructure was very helpful in helping uh, Hezbollah withstand Israeli attacks during the 2006 uh, war in Lebanon and uh, also uh, to rebuild after that conflict. 
So North Korea has a longstanding relationship with Hezbollah, too. With respect to the Houthis, it's a little bit murkier. It seems as if the Houthis got access to uh, Skyd missiles from the existing Yemeni armies as stuck. So the North Koreans sold the arms to the Yemeni army in 2002 when Ali Abdullah Saleh was president. The Houthis forged an alliance with satellites at one point during the Yemeni civil war, or they uh, they've gotten it through that, or they happened to seize those stocks from the army, just as captured uh, trophies. It seems as if the North Koreans have tried to sell arms to them since then. UN panels of express reports which suggest that, but it doesn't seem as if the uh, North Koreans have actually succeeded in transferring them to the Yemenis Houthis in a significant way. Uh, what was your reaction to the report today that uh, the South Korean intelligence uh, re- revealed that said that Kim Jong-un, the North Korean leader, gave orders to find ways to fully support Palestine? Well, I don't think that that's that surprising because the North Korean rhetoric on every single one of these uh, conflicts, you know, in 2021, 2014, 2008, now has always been very consistently framing Israel as the unilateral aggressor and the provocateur and... Uh, and uh, really pointing to Israeli conduct in the West Bank and other unrelated developments as drivers of the conflicts inside Gaza. So that would probably be there. But also, I think that uh, it's just a sign that, you know, North Korea's partnerships with Iran and Syria are getting quite a bit closer, right? North Korea is trying to participate in Syria's reconstruction. When the the time comes, North Korea and Iran have gotten significantly closer since the GCPOA has happened in 2018. Iran and Syria both thought ties with Hamas now that the civil war has de-escalated and uh, North Korean weapons are probably being transited through Iranian territory. So this really fits in with their broader regional strategy of getting closer to Iran and its allies and by extension getting closer to Hamas. Recently, there's also been concerns raised about North Korea's military cooperation with Russia. So in exchange for weapons to be used in Ukraine, Russia is thought to have provided military technology and knowledge uh, to North Korea as well. Do you think that this, there's a risk that this technology and know-how could find its way back to Hamas and other Iran-aligned militias uh, in the Middle East as well? Well, it's uh, certainly very uh, complicated because think about how the uh, weapons probably reached Hamas in the first place. There's a smuggling route from Iran to Sudan into uh, the Palestinian territory. So the point is there's lots of transnational linkages that can fuel uh, the uh, aid to to a country like Hamas. Obviously, the Russians do not necessarily have a verified security partnership with Hamas, but they do have a verified security partnership with Hezbollah. They have a a diplomatic partnership with Hamas and a security partnership with Hezbollah in Syria. Mm. And Hezbollah and Hamas are joined closer. So it's conceivable that there could be transfers through that. There also could be transfers between Russia and Iran that could reach Hamas. So Russia, Iran, North Korea are all getting closer. Iran is uh, Russia's other military ally, supplying drones to them. So, yes, I think that's a legitimate concern that any ties between North Korea and Russia could indirectly end up benefiting Hamas. How do you think Washington is viewing this sort of partnership between North Korea and the militias? So obviously it's going to be another source of tension between the Americans and the North Koreans. I mean, John Kirby's initial statement was a bit more ambiguous than what the Israelis and the South Koreans are arguing shortly after October 7th. He just didn't want to make a conclusive determination one way or another. That was different from Russia, where even as early as last year, the U.S. was sounding the alarm about North Korean arms transfers to the Russians. When it comes to the Palestinians, they're a little more cautious. But... Uh, I think that this will definitely be another area of tension between the U.S. and North Korea. But what will it really lead to? It will lead to sanctions, obviously, against North Korean entities. 
uh, that have ties to Iran, most of which have already been sanctioned already. So the U.S. will probably condemn it, but ultimately won't be able to do much to stop it. And finally, what do you think this alliance between North Korea and Hamas and others in the region mean for Seoul here in South Korea? How do you think South Korea should be viewing this situation? Well, South Korea should obviously be viewing it with a degree of concern. I mean, the arms transfers themselves aren't that biggest problem because they're just a small number and they're not likely to have a significant impact on the battlefield. But uh, certainly the fact that North Korea is investing in tunnel infrastructure in the Middle East and is possibly learning lessons from Hamas's ground incursion into Israel uh, that it could apply to security in the Korean Peninsula, that is something that obviously South Koreans should be paying uh, a close amount of attention to. But, and uh, so, yeah, so I think it's, uh, it's a concern from that point of view. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. We'll be speaking to Dr. Samuel Ramani at the Royal United Services Institute. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 23.57 points, or 1.03% on Wednesday, to close at 2,301.56. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 3.13 points, or 0.43%, to close at 739.23. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened 6.81 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,357.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We turn now to our daily segment, Korea Trending, where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, Daniel Che, our news editor. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you again, Jungle. Okay, so what story do you have for us first today? Autumn is a time when people go outside to see the colorful leaves, when we have the changing of hues. Mm. Uh, that's a season that brings in a lot of joy and outside activities, whether we're going to mountains, national parks, and such. Sure. Unfortunately, though... Along with autumn came fine dust. It's reaching concerning levels as of late. Yes, we are, of course, no strangers to this phenomenon here in Korea. But for those who have looked out the window in recent days, it has been particularly concerning. How bad has it been? Well, according to Air Korea, which monitors air quality in the nation as of Tuesday, ultra-fine dust levels reach bad or between 36 and 75 micrograms per cubic meter in Seoul. At one point, the level exceeded 76 in select areas, including Incheon. This comes at a time when Koreans have enjoyed improved air quality between 2019 and last year, when we always wore masks, which ironically coincides with the COVID-19 pandemic era. During that span, the fine dust levels continued to record signs of decline, reaching as low as 18 micrograms per, per cubic meter. But this year, we've been seeing a rebound at an average of over 20 between January to October. That's an on-year jump of around 10%. Right. So what are some of the causes of this latest unwelcome change? So according to the European Space Agency, the concentration level of nitrogen oxide in China's air has increased significantly in the last two weeks. Northwestern or western winds are the leading cause as they bring along pollutants from China into Korea. Quite a contrast to the summer months when southern winds blowing from the Pacific brings clean, fresh air. Plus, during autumn and winter, the atmospheric mixed layer, or the height above the surface in which pollutants can be dispersed, is lower. This means the concentration level of fine dust will be higher during the colder months. 
Fine particles known as PM2.5 or 2.5 are dangerous because a single particle has a diameter of less than 2.5 micrometers, so they can get into the deep parts of your lungs or even into bloodstreams. Mm. It's practically invisible. They can only be detected with an electron microscope. Uh, exposure to fine dust can lead to coughing, chest tightening, uh, shortness of breath, irritation, and can trigger various respiratory problems. Right, it's a scourge that has plagued Korea for years, although, as you said, there was a bit of a respite during the pandemic years when there was less industrial activity in China. But it looks like it is back with a vengeance, and once again, there will be growing calls to try and address this issue somehow. Okay, let's continue on to our second story. What do you have for us? If you have ever used Seoul's subway system during peak hours, it can feel like a battle as huge amounts of people try to take the trains. <laughs> and when you're inside a packed car, it feels it can feel pretty tight. Seoul Metro is looking to possibly make some drastic changes. What they feel could provide greater convenience uh, to subway passengers is perhaps getting rid of seats. And that's according to the transport company's announcement on Wednesday. Getting rid of seats altogether, that sounds like a fairly drastic measure. Can you give us more details of this plan? So a test run of the new interior of the cars will be carried out on lines 4 and 7 starting next January at the earliest. Some compartments or carriages will be entirely free of seats. So Seoul Metro believes this way, more passengers can be accommodated while reducing discomfort during peak hours. The reason why lines 4 and 7 were chosen because it's, it was discovered that the level of passengers on these two lines during the third quarter easily exceeded 150% of normal capacity. Right, so it's not all carriages, but just some will be seat-free. So there will still be seats available for the elderly and disabled, and it will just be during peak hours. But... Uh, Will this drastic move actually produce the desired efforts? Yeah, the officials did their research to choose the lines with cars that have relatively fewer seats. Uh, through this trial run, congestion levels in cars are expected to be reduced by more than 30%. Commuters won't be adversely affected by this trial run, as only three trains on line 4 and a single train on line 7 will first have less than eight compartments that change to seatless versions. Seoul Metro provided reassurance that this drastic change will be officially implemented and expanded only when the nod of approval is given by the public, and they vowed to devise more creative solutions to provide greater convenience. There'll also be questions of whether this is safe or not. I'm sure they have looked into that as well. But yes, yeah, so this shows just how crowded this whole metro system is getting and that for many, any way to alleviate the problem will be welcomed. Uh, let's continue on to our last story. What else do you have for us? In the world of sports, South Korean football star Kim Min-jae made headlines yesterday for being one of the nominees for the prestigious Ballon d'Or Award. Well, he's back on the news today as he won the AFC Asian International Player of the Year prize at the AFC Annual Awards on Wednesday. Right, so, of course, it was a long shot for him to win the Ballon d'Or Award, but just a day later, he gets what he deserves. Yes, the 27-year-old defensive juggernaut who now plays for Bayern Munich after enjoying a successful 2023 campaign with Napoli, uh, beat Japan's Kaoru Mitoma and Iran's Mehdi Taremi to clinch that honor. He became the second South Korean footballer to win this award, the first being Sunung Min of Tottenham Hotspur, who took home the prize only three times between 2015 and 2019. <laughs> uh, Kim earned the recognition for an exceptional season that saw the defender spearheading the charge to lead SSC Napoli to their first Serie A title since 1990. 
writes on only won that award <laughs> three times. Uh, but yes, going back to Kim, this is, of course, a huge achievement because it's usually tougher for defenders to win such uh, prestigious honours over attackers, playmakers and goal-getters. Right. They don't make the highlight reels as often as mm. the uh, exciting uh, net scorchers there. It's all the more elusive uh, it is for a defensive centre-back to win this award that pits the best of the best among Asian players, securing their place in the cutthroat competition of Pro Football League outside of Asia. The two-time K-League One winner with Hyundai Motors made his international debut in 2017. His stock has been rising since moving to Fernabarnche from Chinese Super League's Beijing FC in 2021. Napoli pursued Kim and got him on the roster even before he completed a year at the Turkish team. Kim helped the Italian side reach the UEFA Champions League Elite Eight for the first time in the club's history. He also secured the team's first league trophy and earned the Defensive Player of the Year award by ensuring the team conceded the least number of goals in the Serie that season. Kim then saw the move to Bundesliga giant Bayern Munich. He was instrumental in guiding the Tagog Warriors to their 10th successive FIFA World Cup in Qatar 2022. And he was the only Asian player to make the 2023 men's Ballon d'Or shortlist. Well, there's no doubt that he fully deserves this latest award and well done to him. That's where we wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. We now come to Career Book Club. This is our weekly segment every Wednesday where we dive into the world of Korean literature and books, usually through works available in translation and beyond. Joining me in the studio now is Barry Welsh, our literary critic, with another book for us to discover. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hi. It's great to be back. Okay, so what book are you introducing to our listeners today? So this week we're reviewing a novel called The Guest by Hwang Sok Yong. Uh, the Korean title is Son Nim, and it was originally published in Korea in 2001, and then it was translated into English by Kyung Ja Chun and Maya West, uh, and published in English in 2005. We've reviewed many of Wang's books, including Princess Barry, Familiar Things and The Road to Sampo. So I won't go over Wang's full biography again uh, today, but he was born in Changjun uh, and he pursued a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Dongguk University. Uh, and in 1964, he was incarcerated in uh, Korea for political reasons. And during that time, he came into contact with labor activists. Uh, and this uh, was a big influence on him as a young uh, man and writer. After his release, he work in a cigarette factory and then at uh, construction sites across the uh, country. Uh, between 1966 and 1969 he was in Korea's military corps during the Vietnam War uh, and although he, he was there uh, reluctantly uh, he, uh, he saw the conflict there as a, a liberation struggle and he's written about that as well. He's still a very prolific writer today uh, and today's novel The Guest delves into a crucial period in Korean history particularly during the Korean war and it spotlights, it spotlights an often overlooked incident called the Sinchon Massacre uh, and it brings to light uh, real life atrocities in a small town in Hwanghae-do which is in present day North Korea uh, and his approach here is quite unique he reimagines the incident and he's shifting uh, blame from the uh, US military forces to civilians uh, and he portrays it as almost a result of a, a sort of a small civil war in this uh, village and region uh, and so his perspective in this book it does challenge the conventional narrative 
Uh, and this book is quite challenging in some ways, but it is a significant book in modern Korean literature uh, for this uh, rather daring exploration of a sensitive and uh, under-discussed chapter of history. Yeah, so that's a fascinating backdrop. So once again, it was originally published in Korean in 2001, and I believe it is initially set in that time period. Yeah. But it addresses mm-hmm. an incident uh, that took place during the Korean War. Right, yeah. So can mm-hmm. you give us an overview of the plot of the guest? Okay, so you are correct. It does. It is set around that time period, or at least at the, the beginning of the novel in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And it revolves around the life of a reverend, Reverend Ru Hyosup. This is a Korean man who's been living in the United States. Uh, and uh, he seizes an opportunity to return to North Korea, which is his homeland. And this is part of a homeland visitor's uh, program. Uh, however, his journey takes an unexpected turn when his brother, uh, Johan, also uh, passes away sh- shortly before his departure. And so what unfolds after this is a very poignant exploration of Yosip's past and then the secrets that his brother Johan held and then also these uh, you know, terrible historical events that were part that happened as part of the uh, Korean War or during the Korean War. Uh, and so the novel weaves uh, Yosip's contemporary journey, so back to North Korea, uh, with this sort of haunting uh, first-person accounts of these events that happened in, in, in the past. Uh, and this sort of mixture of these two uh, timelines creates a very gripping uh, story. And so through Yosef's journey, uh, the guest delves into some you know, very, like I said, some challenging but profound themes. So first and foremost, it's uh, about confronting the human cost of war. So it's about the loss of innocence, uh, just the nature, the, the brutal nature of conflict. Uh, but then it also explores the clash of ideologies and specifically what Huang is doing here. He's talking about the clash of imported ideologies to Korea. And here he's looking at Christianity and Marxism and sort of critiquing how they disrupted the traditional Korean way of life. And so the guest, through, through the novel, the guest, he's examining uh, the concept of identity, Korean identity, and he's trying to shed light on the struggle to hold on to your, uh, your own internal values amid the sort of uh, terrible external pressures. And then it's also a reflection on the theme of reconciliation and then just this idea about the ghost of the past that haunt us in the present. Mm. There's a, certainly some... Uh deep and thought-provoking themes. As you said, it this work, this, it forced the wider Korean society to look back on its own history and question perhaps some of the narratives that have been built up over the years. Mm-hmm. The characters in the book, of course, are the key conduits for that. Can you tell us a bit more about them as well, what sort of journeys they go on? Right, yeah. So uh, in this book, we can see there's there's several interesting characters. And, of course, Yostup is the main character, and he goes through this very significant development throughout the, his uh, journey. Uh, he's the anchor of the story. He's a Korean guy. He's living in the United States. And, you know, he leaps at this opportunity to go back to his homeland. It's very important to him. And so, of course, he's he really desperately wants this opportunity. Uh, but this journey that he goes on, it leads to a very significant change in his emotional and psychological state. Uh, and then his character... Uh, it, it's marked by sort of very powerful inner conflict and we learn that this comes from his sort of very difficult and estranged past with his late brother 
who had a very dark history, and Johan, his brother, who's not physically present in the novel, he's also a significant character. So his it's his actions and his decisions in the past that cast a, a long shadow over uh, Josip in the present. And as the story unfolds, we we sort of gradually learn more and we're, we're exposed more to the, the nature of his character and the things that he was part of, these sort of terrible things that, that he participated in. Uh, and then we also have this other element... Uh, you know, Huang Shokjung often includes these kind of magical realist elements. And so in this novel, we have the spirits and ghosts from the past uh, and they kind of follow Josip on his journey. And we also see how they undergo development as they recount their stories of, of what happened back during the Korean War. And then they're also reflecting on this sense of collective guilt uh, and then suffering that they experienced during that period. Mm. And so those spirits, they they uh, in the story, they're, they're uh, a bridge between the past uh, and the present. And really the the purpose in the narrative is to talk about the intricacies of the the horrors of war mm. uh, but Huang's a very uh, talented writer, and he you know develops these characters quite skillfully and uh through especially these sort of uh, figures these you know ghosts we witness the transformation of Josip uh as he you know investigates a, a deeply emotional and often morally challenging journey uh, and it's this interplay between these characters uh and the past and the present which add to the complexity of the story so it is very rich and thought provoking but it can at times be a little uh, challenging so that aspect of the ghost is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. It sounds almost comparable to uh, a Christmas Carol. With oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, would that be a fair comparison? Uh, sure. Right. So the the ghosts are genuine characters in the story. We learn who they are, and you know they appear at significant points in the journey, and each. Each of the different characters, they they illuminate or they're about some specific aspect of the war. Like they had a different uh, role in these events that unfolded and their reflections of their appearance in the narrative and their sort of interaction with Josip. They reveal a sort of, each of them reveals a different aspect of this uh, sort of key event that happened during the Korean War. Mm, well, it sounds like... Uh a very profound book. It sounds like this is a book that would work well, especially for those who appreciate modern Korean history quite well. Mm-hmm. Would that be fair? What do you think? Uh, what do you think this work? Uh, what do you think we need to note to approach this work? Right. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, like you said, it is a, a must-read for individuals who are interested in historical fiction, particularly uh, if you're looking for a, uh, a different perspective on the Korean War. I think it also appeals to readers who appreciate character-driven narratives and uh, generally just thought-provoking explorations of complex themes, uh, and those who are intrigued by lesser-known aspects of history or the impact of war uh, on individuals will also, I think, find this book engaging. Huang's storytelling is very clever. You know, he weaves together history and, and personal journeys, uh, and yeah, you know, it is a, a novel that leaves a lasting impression. Overall, I thought it was very captivating and poignant, and I think it will resonate with anyone who values uh, historical insight and just com- uh, compelling storytelling in general. Okay, so once again, the book is called The Guest, and it's by Huang Suk Young, and that was our pick for this week's Korea Book Club. Barry, thank you for that recommendation and review. Till next time, take care, and we look forward to the next one. Okay, take care. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the job, I love, and it loves me. Coffee and tea. And I'm Barista Omburam. 
and the winner of the 2023 World Barista Championship. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. We've come to morning edition preview, our closing segments where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, a y so what's the first article that you have for us today? So I was taking a look at the Korea Herald and one story in particular caught my eye. It was about a contemporary performance. It's quite unique, and I think it's right up my alley. Hwang Dong-hee has written about Z, so three Zs, and it aims, <laughs> to, aims to send the audience to sleep. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. It, it's being held at the Seoul Foundation for Arts and Culture's multipurpose theatre called The Quad, and you can read about it in the culture section of the paper. Right, so three Zs or Zs, as <laughs> Americans would say. Sure. And it's the performance aim is to send the audience to sleep. <laughs> It is. Okay, so how does the performance try to do that? So first of all, the performance is three hours long. Right. The theatre is dimly lit and sunlight from the outside is blocked. Audience members are asked to take off their shoes when they enter and they can sit on mats, blankets and cushions that are laid out on the floor. I think that is already enough for me to fall asleep. <laughs> If audience members don't fall asleep within the first 30 minutes of the performance, they will get to see dancers entering the room while dreamy music is playing in the background. <laughs> One of the comments I read from the article that made me laugh, it said, there's no need to pay attention to the dancers' movements. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's about the atmosphere yes. then, I guess. Mm-hmm. So where did the idea behind this... unique performance come from so the choreographer Hwang Soo Hyun tries to break the barriers between the stage and the audience through her performances she also likes to focus on the realm of sleep which she says is a neglected aspect of human existence Mm. so yeah and if you might be put off by the sound of other people sleeping for example if someone is snoring Hwang suggests you just acknowledge that someone else is finding their rest (laughs) but yeah the performance runs until November 12th except on Mondays Well, it certainly sounds different, to (laughs) say the least. Uh, If any listeners are up for this uh, interesting experience, yes, as you said, uh, there's a couple more weeks left of this uh, performance. Okay, let's uh, move on to the second article that you found in tomorrow's newspapers. The next article is about an issue regarding some tours in Korea. I didn't even realize that this was happening until I read Lee Hyojin's article in the Metropolitan section of the Korea Times. There is this practice called dumping tours. This is when tourists are herded into stores and are forced to buy overpriced products. These tours are illegal and the Seoul Metropolitan Government is cracking down on them. Okay, so is this uh, like... department stores that they are dropped off in. I think I've heard of things like that happening in other countries as well, such as Paris Mm. as well. Yes. Uh, But the unfortunate thing is this is something that could affect the city's reputation if this becomes a growing issue, especially because Seoul has been looking to attract more tourists following the pandemic again. Exactly. Yeah, the article mentions that there are people called tour conductors. They are unqualified tourism inspector, interpreter guides who are hired by domestic tour agencies. And the way they make their money is from the commission uh, when the tourists buy products at the stores. So they really try to push them into buying the items. Mm. It's become more of a problem recently and they seem to be targeting Chinese tourists mainly. Back in August, the Chinese government lifted its years-long ban on group travel to Korea. So more and more Chinese citizens have been visiting the country. 
Okay, so it may not be department stores then. Uh, but you said the cities has been cracking, trying to crack down on it. Has it shown positive results? When they inspected two districts in October, they found one unqualified tour conductor and three sitting guides. A sitting guide is the name for a licensed guide who is hired to just sit on the tour bus. They don't actually guide the tourists, but they are there just in case authorities inspect a bus as part of Seoul's crackdowns. Mm. There are also plans to conduct more on-site inspections from this month in Mapa District and across uh, shopping malls and duty-free shops. Okay, so yes, this is a concern, a growing problem once again now that tourists are back. But yes, Mm. hopefully the authorities will be able to crack down on it. Uh, We'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's all for our show today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow, so we hope you can join us again then. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon Jang-ho, and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or a call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive. Until peonies bloom, I Kim Yong Nang. Morani Pigikajinan Nananajik Naui Pomer Kidarigo Isil Teo. Morani Tuk Tuk Dorojo Parinal Nanan Piroso Pomer Yoin Sorume Changil Teo. Until peonies bloom, 
I'll just go on waiting for my spring. On days when peonies drop, drop their petals, I'll finally languish in sorrow at the loss of spring. 5월 어느 날, 그 하루 무덥던 날, 떨어져 누운 꽃잎마저 시들어 버리고는 천지에 몰아는 자취도 없어지고. One day in May, that one sultry day, when the fallen petals had all withered away, there was no trace of peonies in all the world. 뻗쳐 오르던 내 보람 서운케 무너졌느니 모란이 지고 말면 그뿐 내 한해는 다 가고 마라. My soaring sense of fulfillment crumbled into sorrow once peonies have finished falling my year is over for all 360 days i sadly lament 360날 한양 섭섭해 우옵니다 모란이 피기까지는 나는 아직 기다리고 있을 테요 찬란한 슬픔의 봄을 until peonies bloom, I'll just go on waiting for a spring of glorious sorrow. You've listened to Korean poet Kim Young Ran's Morani Pigi Kajinun Until Peonies Bloom, read by An Jae and translated by Brother Anthony of Taste and Sun Jae. KBS World Radio brings the beauty of Korean poetry to the world. KBS World Radio.